Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Sarah Brazy White, and she is a writer, teacher, stage performer, and arts consultant. She has written a memoir, Primary Lessons, and she's also the author of A Wonderlust, a South Carolina folk tale. Meanwhile, her poetry collection, Feelings Brought to Surface, is available. And some of her memoir pieces have been turned into stage productions. She uh, writes essays about true stories of remembered love. This one sounds really interesting. Aunties, a book in which 30 authors celebrate their other mothers. So uh, she gets into some very interesting things, and we're going to get into them with her and hear some poetry as well. So Sarah, welcome to Poetry Spoken Here. Oh, thank you, Charlie. I'm really happy to be with you in Vermont virtually. I forgot to confirm, you're in New York City, right? I'm in the suburbs of New York. I'm in oh, okay. Ossining, New York, which is about 40 miles north of New York City. Okay, got it. So you sent me some poems uh, before we did this, of course. I always get to scan some poems from the person. And um, some are interesting and revealing and personal. Why don't we just start with one? Because I think it says something about a lot about you in a more general kind of way, the one about your offering to the future, sort of your attitude about what you're doing with a pen in your hand. I wrote this poem because people kept asking me about the things I wrote, family and friends, and I wrote this in response. I arrived late at the altar of marriage, long past my fertility used by date. So on our family tree, my line ends abruptly. Since I'm unable to seed the future, I mine the past, dig deeply into veins of familial misfortune, bear witness to stories long suppressed behind sugar-starched lace curtains. My revelations inspire fear in those who hide the truth behind forced smiles or seal their lips with fermented libations. They would have me write fiction cloak history and gossamer, present images that bear no resemblance to those whose genes we share. They whisper that I, childless, unfettered, free of impressionable children, have abandoned self-control in favor of self-indulgence. Perhaps they're right. For I disdain high pedestals that require vigilant balance 
Instead, I tread the fallow fields and spread the stories of lives lived when life had to be raped from barren soil. My written words shall carry forward my family's history that it may be uttered by the young who follow me, unlike those before us who discovered truths and tried to express them in a time and place where their voices could not rise above a whisper. This next generation will be armed with knowledge of our past and able to build a life on the pedestals of truth. I send this gift into the future. It will be my offering from beyond the grave. Oh, that's, that's, that's lovely. That says a lot. Uh, have you had any uh, objections from family members from memoiring and including them? Well, I began my life as a poet before I was a memoirist. And I wrote poems that my family kept thinking, well, saying, um, should you be writing about that? And I actually met a young man who'd gone to high school with me, who'd gone onto my website and said to me, well, did you have to include that piece about Yusef? Your life, you're not setting such a good example for people. And then I get family members who would lie to me because they didn't want me to know certain truths. And because I'm a family researcher, I knew all the backstories, so they couldn't kind of fool me. So nobody has made major objections, but there's been subtle talk about what I should write and what I shouldn't. Should you really say that? Tell the world? <laughs> Is well, see, I, I was 44 years old before I got married, Charlie. And I had pretty much figured out what I was going to do with my life. And my sister took my fiance aside, my oldest sister, and said to him, there's something I need to tell you. And I'm thinking, well, I've told him everything about my life. What is she going to tell him? She said, we've been trying to change her for 44 years, and it hasn't worked. So you <laughs> should know before you marry her that you're not going to be able to change her. Well, that was good because he married you. And he said to her, why would I want to change her? I love her the way she is. I figured I'd hurry up and get married. I wouldn't change my mind on this one. Yeah, good one. <laughs> yeah, but every once in a while, someone writes a poem that talks about what you're talking about. You know, I, I always find that if I'm personally thinking, do I want to tell everybody this? What I do is I think of, well, if somebody else wrote this poem and it was in a book, would I be glad to read it? Would I appreciate it? Would I think it was insightful or brave or whatever? And usually that the answer is yes, that mm -hmm. it would be better if this poem existed in the world, uh, I find. The surprising thing is people identify with it and come and say, oh, yeah, I felt like that, but I couldn't quite say it. I think that we have a responsibility as writers, and I think we each represent the tip of an iceberg, that we have the responsibility of being truthful and honest. It's that line. For people who could not voice this before me, a lot of the stories that I tell are stories that my ancestors lived. 
all of them aren't necessarily revealing, but they reveal things like my great grandfather couldn't read and write. And I get people who say to me, oh, my father couldn't read or write. So I'm, I'm the person who tells it all. I tell people when I got married, I told my husband, you know, you can never run for politics because I've been way too honest with my life and I've lived a full life. <laughs> They're going to know. <laughs> but nobody can blackmail me. That's true. It's already out there. It's already out there. Well, you're reminding me of, I spent about the last three or four days reading Forget the Alamo, which is this new book that's come out about the Alamo and pointing out how absurdly inaccurate the received doctrine about the Alamo really is. And, and it's just terrible. It's an abomination, you know? And, uh, and it's this kind of a thing. What truly, really happened? And what, does, what, does, what do people want to remember about what happened? Because somehow they feel more comfortable not having the truth. But it's, um, it's, it's really, it's what you remind me of. And that, and that book made a, made a really big impression. I didn't know Santa Ana was really a good guy. Uh-huh. He treated those Texans very well, and they were just a bunch of of trying to. They were just trying to get the prop, the territory for to keep slavery. They well, were bad guys. Um, I had a teacher who I run a program for kids who write, and one of my teachers reminded his advanced students that history is written by the victors, and they write it from their point of view. Yeah. During the pandemic, I did a lot of teaching online. And one of the things I did with a lot of my young students was I made them, the prompts that I used in class were prompts related to their life during the pandemic. And I would say to them, in 50 years, history will write about this terrible thing. Tell me what really happened within the walls of your house during this. And they wrote things about baking and watching television with family and doing things they'd never had a chance to do and the father going outside and playing ball in the yard instead of going to work and it was a different kind of perspective and i said there it was a terrible thing where people died but juxtaposed against that were the lives of people who eked out a satisfactory existence under social distancing and isolation but if they don't write it down and the only people who write are about the overall big, terrible things that happen. Mm-hmm. Nobody will be interested in their personal history or even think it exists. Absolutely. That's, that's a, a very cool, some, it's such a simple idea for the assignment, so basic and close to home. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they could, they could easily do the assignment. Oh, they did wonderful things. Like I had one kid who wrote it from the point of view of a roll of a package of toilet paper in the store. And it was the last package on the shelf and people were fighting over getting it. And the toilet paper couldn't understand why people were fighting over such an ordinary thing and how she got home and how they put her in the shelf and parceled out the rolls to the family member. And it was just hysterical. But it was during the period when you couldn't get toilet paper. Yeah. And it was a limitation of all this. And here again, you get a view of what was happening very specifically. Yeah. Yeah. 
as a teacher, I always try to write with my students when I give prompts. And I wrote mine on the personification prompt from the point of view of the refrigerator in the family kitchen. Mm. <laughs> well, I, was, I had more fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was more full than usual since we didn't want to go to the store any more than we had to. <laughs> so it was different. It was Every, very those different. little things were different. And that's, yes. that's where you really learn about what's going on. Yes. Finding out. But that's how, he, that's how you tell the real story of what happened. It is in the small details. Yeah. And a writer, um, teacher, I can't remember who it was, said to me, when you write about the individual haters, then you begin mm -hmm. to tell the real story. Everything is important. And until you accept that, that everything is important, you're writing about what you consider the big pieces when really it's the personal little things. I think in the poems that I write and in the stories that I write, it's the personal revelations that strike people which allow the work to become universal as opposed to things that I mm -hmm. think are just very personal to my life. They're not. But because I've revealed it, people speak up and bring out their sense of identification. Every writer wants to reach an audience and you reach them with the personal within the big political and social and economic situations that you choose. Yeah, the big commonalities. I think that's a major thing about poetry mm -hmm. is that people read it and say, oh, I felt that way. Mm -hmm. As you said, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've been there. <laughs> I had a relationship like that, whatever it might be, uh -huh. but, but they're with you. Well, I actually um, wrote poetry in the beginning because I was so dissatisfied with my life that I couldn't sleep at night. And I would get up and write down what I was thinking. So I didn't really consider myself a poet. They were just things I wrote down. Hmm. And a friend who was teaching poetry at a college got sick and asked me if I would cover for her class. And I said, I've taught a lot of things, but not poetry. And she said, oh, you can do it, go ahead. And as a teacher, I share the idea that if we're asking our students to reveal themselves, which is what poetry does, the teacher needs to join in with that process to even the playing field. And I began to read some of the things that I wrote. Students would ask me after class, can I get a copy of that poem? It's so much how I feel. By the end of the semester, I said, maybe I really am a poet. <laughs> and I published my first book of poetry, Feelings Brought to Surface. Mm -hmm. And while I've denied for so long that I'm a poet because I don't write in traditional prose poet. Sometimes things rhyme. I use a lot of alliteration. I like words. I like specific word expressions. I like metaphors. I like all those things. But I um, have such respect for such learned poets, which I don't consider myself to be one, but I've been designated a poet. Well, that's one style. Being interested in precision, I think, is, is an important thing with poetry, no matter how, it, how you get there. You know, so the right word, really getting it to say what you would like it to say, um, no matter how you get there, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that helps people relate to it be because it helps them understand it, really. Though people say poetry is hard to understand, yeah. But we know it's quite doable if you care to give it a go. <laughs> if you pay close attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
You want, you want to tell us about your aunties? <laughs> um, I, I didn't pull up one of those poems about okay. my aunt. I um, lived with my mother's oldest sister. Let's mm. see, from my stage piece, let's see if I can remember one. Ooh. Antonia Bracey White was the most important person in my life when I was five years old. She called herself Susie when it seemed that all the people in her South Carolina hometown mispronounced her name. She was my mother's big sister and I lived with her from the time I was five months old. Aunt Susie loved me very much. I know because she told me so regularly. We lived in North Philadelphia on Smedley Street in a red brick row house with white marble stairs. And Susie ran her own laundry business in the basement and often sang, God bless the child who has his own. So the sting goes on, but it's about her influence on my life. And I've always considered her my first mother. I lived with her from the time I was five months old until I was five years old because my father had lost his job because of refusal to give the names of teachers who'd attended a NAACP meeting about equal pay for black teachers in the South and he was blacklisted. So my mother needed to go back to school to teach and there was no one to care for me because her entire family had migrated North. But my mother and father refused to leave the South. So I came home into segregation, a single parent family because my parents separated that point. And it was just atrocious for an outspoken kid who'd been used to freedom, who was the only child in a family and who got everything she wanted to suddenly be thrust into poverty, segregation and longing. Mm. So that's why I consider my Aunt Susie because she told me in childhood that I was as good as anybody, probably better. And I believed her. So no matter what I was told during the 12 years I lived in the South, I held fast to that belief and it's what drove me to take my life into my own hands mm -hmm. and drove me into reading and writing. That validating adult is, is so important and your uh, your poem or the, the kind of topic of, of aunts reminds me of every once in a while I run into a grandmother in a poem. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa, Jimmy Baca has one. It's just so good. And there's that kind of thing about how totally important that that total love and acceptance is. And it can come in so many different forms, yeah. not simply parents. And I think that it takes on a different perspective when it comes from someone who isn't a parent. I, my grandparents all died before I was born, mm. so I didn't have access to that. And I think that I would not be the person I am were it not for that sense of empowerment that I got from my aunt. And she set me in motion to be a role model. So I've been that. I have no children of my own. So I've been the aunt for my nieces, nephews, grandnieces, and nephews. I am that. That's my role yeah. model. Yeah, it's just so important. And it's, it's, it's made a lot of poets. 
that adult has <laughs> has created a lot of poets for us mm -hmm. or helped them to develop and become who they are. It's just it's one of the incredible relationship things. But let's hear another poem. Whatever you want to do. Um, my father, I only saw my father twice in my life. Once when I was 10, and again when he was in his casket at his funeral. So I wrote this poem called Lasting Impressions. My father is no more and was not when he was, at least not for me. My mother spoke no words of him, though often I caught her dreamy-eyed, adrift in a sea of passion that caused her skin to flame. I could only guess it involved him, since I knew she loved no other man. Startled as if discovered in transgression, she chastised me as if it were I who had sinned. He disappeared before I could record his face and no man-made image of him inhabited our house. So I fanned the embers my older sisters tried to drown. I begged them to paint me a picture. They did, using our bodies as reference points, said my older sister's lips were full like his. Our brother's high forehead was a perfect replica. My piano playing sister's slender fingers rivaled his own. And me, I had inherited his heavy-lidded eyes. Still, that was not enough for a lasting impression. So now I stare into my father's casket and long to touch his face, but I'm afraid to mar the powder that separates us. Instead, I memorize what I see. Gaunt hands crossed upon themselves, strong chin, silent lips, hair gray at the temples, so dignified, so peaceful. Did he go willingly? not caring that he was leaving behind a daughter in need of a memory to last her lifetime. I whispered, Daddy, and spilled tears onto his silent face. Then I turn away, tightly clutching my lasting impression. Very, yeah, vivid portrait of the scene, actually, and of what's going on in you at the time. Glad you read that one. It's funny, I read a lot of these, but some of them touch me. And um, I, people like to ask the question, if you could talk to somebody dead, mm. you could have a conversation, who would you have it with? I would love to have a conversation with my father. Everybody who reads my work says, your father is such a tragic figure. I actually wrote a book of fiction about my mother and my father and their relationship and their life in the South, simply trying to make peace in my heart with what I considered such a difficult life that they lived. Both my parents were school teachers. My mother's mother and father couldn't read and write. My father's mother and father were college graduates. Hmm. My father's father, it just, and I, I think about stuff. And when I was in my 40s, I did enough family research to 
still to give myself a full impression of my father. And I had no idea what he had endured in his lifetime. I just thought of him as an absentee father. And I learned that it was far more going on than that. Yeah. So writing for me has been a way to celebrate our likenesses. I've been told as an adult that I'm a lot like my father in spirit. And what he wanted to do before the civil rights movement began that he never had a chance to do lives through me and the work that I do in the public venue. Yeah. Well, being at a time when you can be blackballed for attending an NAACP meeting is just, oh, there's so much stuff. And this stuff is not that long ago, uh, really. In, in, in our lifetimes, this kind of stuff, and, and worse. I speak in schools and do talks, and students are amazed when I tell them that I couldn't go to the public library in my hometown. And they're like, really? And, you know, there's nothing like living history. And a part of my work in the world is to do just that because young people respond more to that than what they read as cold, dead facts in a history book. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the purpose of my life to tell these stories. Do you have a, a couple of things you try to like always get in when you have a group of students? Like you'd always want to tell them? Yes, the one zinger I always try to leave them with is that when you're young, you think you have no control over your life. And that as soon as you get free, you run your life the way you want. And I always tell them that you have to prepare yourself so that when you're free, you'll know how to do it well that all you can do while you're under the requirements of school and parents is try to learn the things that will make your future stronger and make you able to step into the future and live your life. Because you can't go unprepared when the door is open. All right. I claimed my school teacher mother loved her students better than she loved her children. And I've heard this from preacher's kids. I've heard it from teacher's kids. But I was 18 when my mother died. Had I not been prepared, I would never have been able to survive as an 17-year-old orphan going into college with no backstop for my life. Yeah. But her, what I thought were controls, were really the things that were teaching me lessons. My mother's favorite quote was um, Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. But my mother didn't use that principle in its scientific sense. Mm -hmm. She used it to coach me on life in a harsh environment. So she was preparing me for life in the same world where she had lived, not knowing that that world would change for me but she prepared me for that world. Uh -huh. Good advice, whoa. And that's great that you're out there telling that your message to kids. I mean, it's just you know, a good thing. It's been wonderful hearing these poems. 
and uh, I could have could have learned even more about you, like South Carolina folktale. What? Tell me a bit, for a minute what that's about. It's about it's a story that just bubbled up when I went oh. back in my forties to South Carolina after having been away twenty years. It's the story of a man who has the wanderlust. It's really, I think, a story about my father hmm. and how his children try to cure him of the wanderlust by going to see a folk doctor back up in the swamps and how they end up curing him with love. It's a fantasy kind of tale. Yeah. Sounds good, folks. That's The Wanderlust, a South Carolina folk tale, in case you want to follow up and uh, read the details. Okay. And they can find me at www.onmymind.org. They can read lots of things. I post a lot of stuff, but www.onmymind.org. That's what you need to know, folks. Thanks a lot, Sarah. This has been really, really good. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. You've been listening to Sarah Bracey White talk about her life and writing and reading poems. And you should be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. You've just heard our featured poet for this episode, and now I am happy to tell you about a book of poems, Diamonds, by Camille Guthrie. It's a stunner. Guthrie is the author of three previous books of poetry and is published in both the 2019 and 2020 collection of Best American Poetry. She's currently Director of Undergraduate Writing Initiatives at Bennington College, just up the road from where I'm sitting here talking to you. That means she's in the neighborhood. I've heard her read live, and it's a treat. She is also our featured poet on episode 117 of Poetry Spoken Here. The reason I like this book is because Guthrie has the rare ability to be erudite, insightful, and downright funny often in the same poem. Allusions to history, myth, and literature abound. But these are not the poems from a person who can't get her head out of seminar mode. They are poems rooted in life. Here are a few lines from Diamonds, the title poem. And here's how it starts. Judith Baker, I'm calling you out. Here in the kitchen where I'm unloading the dishwasher, performing my gender as I'm wont to do. That performing my gender cracks me up. I'm sorry. And later in the poem, I'm lucky to get to teach you, Judith, to students who eat up your words like candy hearts, who return to the arms of their friends to dye their hair blue and fuck everyone and not shave and make manifestos and tweet witty protests, who do drugs and sleep late and dance naked. They seem so unafraid, ahistorical, dreamful. They stand outside the library smoking cigarettes as if we're not going to die, as if there aren't books to read. I have the greatest job in the world. Could be a lot worse. But I'm lonely in debt. There's no one to love me. I'm feeling sorry for myself and guilty for all my luck. Mutually contradictory states of mind. That's what Shakespeare invented. 
and later in the poem, what I want is someone, not a husband, to perform the male gender around my house. I need help stacking wood, putting the garden to bed. For the winter, I need a man in my bed. It goes way below zero in the winter around here. There's more. It's a wonderful multi-page poem. And uh, it deserves to be the title poem because, to me, it exemplifies the kind of things uh, that Camille does in her poetry. Here's, Here's another few, another little example I think you will find enjoyable. And uh, again, a little bit reveals her her consciousness, you know. She is a uh, middle-aged, by the way, divorced single mom and does not hesitate to confront what that means with wit and verve. Subjects are as varied as Sylvia Plath's prom dress as a magical object, John Keats as her boyfriend, <laughs> and as I say... In her poem, uh, My Net Worth, it's a list poem. And among the many very interesting things on the list, I'll just give you a few. Remember, it's her net worth. A barn full of dusty books, something chewed the portrait of a lady. Daydreams of literary glory and glorious revenge. Fantasies of being friends with Roland Barthes and Joan Jett. A pond full of muck and one snapping turtle. Debts to my parents, mostly emotional. Well, there you go, folks. Published by BOA, a wonderful publishing house, Diamonds by Camille Guthrie is highly recommended. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. I hope you'll be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.